And all of God's people shouted, hallelujah. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, team. Before I bring the message, I want to uh, express uh, from Will Graham his gratitude to you as a body of believers. He made sure that I tell that to apostles. He loves apostles, and I, many of you love him. And uh, we were together Friday in the uh, joy of celebration of his grandfather's home going. And so I delivered the message. Thank you for praying for him and for his family. Someone uh, told the story, in fact, shall remain nameless, about a small-town preacher who one morning, one Sunday morning, decided to call in sick in a small town. I guess he can do that. I've never called in sick in my life, even when I'm sick. <laughs> and uh, so he called his deacon, and he said, Deacon Smith, you're going to preach today. I'm sick. Whereupon his wife immediately chided him. She said, how can you lie like this? And sure enough, half an hour later, he got dressed, took his golf clubs, put him in the car, and he drove 50 miles away from town where nobody recognizes him. And so when he got to the golf course and he began to tee off, his two guardian angels began to talk to each other. One says, what can we, what should we do with this guy? Well, the first one said, um, let's send the ball into the rough where he can never find it. The second one said, um, no, 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 no. Let's not do that. Let's actually give him a hole in one. He said, what do you mean? What, what, you, you, you don't want to reward this guy for lying? <laughs> And then the, second, the first angel said, well, think, think about it this way. Who he's going to tell? <laughs> In fact, that same scallywag said that Paul must have been a frustrated golfer because in Romans 7, he said, I keep doing the wrong things I don't want to do. And I thought about this, and I said, I don't want to leave the ladies out. He could also be a frustrated shopper. He goes from shop to shop to shop looking what he's looking for. And finally, when he buys something, goes home, she buys, come home, takes it back the next day, <laughs> realizing it's not what she was looking for. Well, now that I offended everybody, let's get serious about the Word of God in Romans chapter 7. It's all about the issue that has been a source of confusion among Christians for many years. The confusion is this. It's between the hypocrisy of performance and the freedom that we have in the risen Christ. This is a huge issue. <laughs> so many people ended up throughout history, and if you read church history, you see it, ended up with going with one extreme or the other, of which the Bible is innocent of both extremes. One extreme used grace as a license to sin. The other extreme is the legalism of performance. Hear me right, please. This is important because I think both extremes not only erroneous, not only wrong, but they cause a lot of frustration 
in the Christian life. Most often, lack of effectiveness and lack of fruitfulness in the Christian life uh, leads some people into going into flurry of activities. They just get busy doing things, programs, and all kinds of stuff, you know, just to cover up. I know employers know that some of their employees uh, cover up for the lack of effectiveness by, by just activities. They're just doing things. They're busy doing some stuff, hyperactivities. It is no wonder that so many Christians are living in the bondage of performance and activism with very precious fruit to show for it. In fact, throughout the Scripture, we see examples of people who trusted more in the, their performance than in the power of God in the Word of God. You see it all the way from Cain, who trusted in what he wants to give God instead of obedience. You see it all the way at the Apostle Peter, where he trusted in his courage instead of the words of Jesus. It has been said that a person can be totally lost, even though he may sacrifice like Cain in Genesis 4. He may weep like Esau in Genesis 27. He might serve like Gehaziah, the, the, the servant of the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings 5. He may leave Sodom like Lot's wife in Genesis 19. He may tremble like Felix in Acts 24. He may have zeal for God like Israel in Romans chapter 10. Or he may be a disciple like Judas in Acts 1.25, or he may take part in the worship like Korah in Numbers chapter 16. He may desire to die the death of a righteous like Balaam in Numbers 23. He may even uh, have long prayers like the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He may prophesy like Saul in 1 Samuel 10.10. Uh, 10. He may have lamps like the foolish virgins in Matthew 25. He may be a genuine seeker like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, and he may even be almost a believer like King Agrippa and totally lost. The problem with reliance on performance rather than the power of the Holy Spirit leads to a life of frustration in the Christian life. Here's how it happens. You get up first thing in the morning, and you say to yourself, I've got to perform today. I've got to be good today. And then you get a little bit of success in your day, and you say, great, wow, this is great. You pat yourself on the back. boy, And you feel good. And feeling good gives way to pride. I'm really good. <laughs> I've done well. And pride leads to fall. And the fall leads to discouragement, guilt, and shame. And the process keeps going time after time after time after time. Romans chapter 7 gives us a more excellent way. Can you say that with me? More excellent way. Let's say it together. More. Here Paul tells us that surrender and a total reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit will lead not only to joy but to victory. Think about it this way. You know what I like to do and what I struggle to do when I prepare is 
How can I take these big theological concepts that are are, are incredibly rich and incredibly deep and incredibly wonderful, how how can I make it uh, uh, relevant to every day? It's a struggle of of my life as I prepare, and I thank God for His uh, uh, help in this. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you are diabetic, okay? But judging from every second commercial that has medicine for diabetes, you think that half of America got diabetes. But that, that, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm going to get you imagined because we all know if you're not, you know somebody who's diabetic. Suppose a person who's a diabetic, but he never treats his diabetes. What's going to happen? He's going to die, right? Fortunately, there is insulin, which means no one should die from diabetes. We have treatments, thank God. But suppose the same diabetic person goes on a long journey, and he does not take any of the things that he needs. He doesn't take his testing kit, his blood testing kit. He doesn't take some cans of juice. He doesn't take any of the vials of of insulin. What will happen? He will go into an insulin shock, and he could die. Are you with me so far? I know what some of you are thinking, because I can literally read your minds, even though they had the place darkened today. (laughs) I can see it. You say, Michael, what has this got to do with my spiritual life? Uh, How is this going to work in my spiritual life? Be patient with me, okay? Here's what I believe with all my heart the Apostle Paul is trying to say to all of us. He is saying that I can find victory over sin in my life when… When I approach each day realizing that I'm capable of sin, are you with me? That is the testing kit, the blood testing kit for a diabetic, acknowledging that I'm very capable of sinning. Let me tell you, at the outset, as your pastor, I am very capable of sinning, and I'm talking about all sins, not just some. By approaching each day, acknowledging my vulnerability to sin, I am in a better position to guard against my heart. You see, that's, that's your testing kit. That way, I can appropriate the power that God made available to me through the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's your insulin. Did you get it? That's your insulin. <laughs> You got your testing kit is the acknowledgement that I am capable of sinning. Then you got your insulin which says, Jesus, I have the power to absolutely give you victory. You see, listen to me. I have seen this through the years. The moment you say, I I got this one licked, that's the moment of trouble. I've heard pastors who have fallen, and they testified. He said, you know, one guy particularly that was very well known in the 80s and from New England, I went to hear him at a breakfast that a member of our church took me there. And he told the story. He said, you know, somebody asked me about this particular sin. I said, got that one licked. Three years later, he was in that trouble, that very sin. I remember some time ago, a very condescending brother looked at me, and I'm talking about many years ago, Brother Yusuf. What is your weakness? I said, are you kidding? All of them. All of them. I have no strength of my own. I'm weak in every area. Uh, 
If, if I have strength in my own, I'm in trouble because I can tell you without the power of the Holy Spirit in me, I'm dead meat. In Romans 7, Paul tells us about this more excellent way of living our Christian life away from the agony of performance. It is a way of freedom. It's a way of liberty. It's a way of victory over sin. In fact, there are two verses here. Let me get them out of the way because I know particularly those of you who are great Bible scholars, you you came here this morning and said, I want to see what he's going to say about those verses. You know the ones I'm talking about? 24 and 25. Oh, wretched man that I am. (laughs) Who shall rescue me from this body of death? Now, beloved, that's a performance crying. Verse 25, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the liberty in Christ. This is the source of continuous victory. Let's look at the chapter together. But before I get to the outline, which I worked out on for you, I need to tell you that Romans chapter 7, many of you know this, because I know there are so many Bible scholars in this church, caused more division in the church of Jesus Christ. It, it, it caused more division probably than any other chapter. In fact, it's this division has been going on ever since the Apostle Paul wrote this. Uh, whole movements started over dividing over the interpretation of Romans 7. Whole denominations even started over that division. Some say Paul was speaking about his life before Christ came into his life. Others said, no, 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 no. This is truly represents a growing, vibrant Christian life. I'm not here to tell you what to believe. You can go either way. It's fine by me. It's between you and God. I'm going to tell you what I believe after 52 years of studying the Scripture and trusting in the sovereign Lord. I've said this until I'm blue in the face every year for over 30, nearly 31 years. Always put the text in what? God bless you. I love you dearly. And you've got to understand that seven comes after six. And I told you last week, and those of you who are not here, you're going in a movie in the middle of the movie, so you need to go back and download the chapter six. Chapter six is all about sanctification. That's a big word. It simply means growing every day like Christ, growing more and more like Christ. That's what it means. If you look back and you've been walking with the Lord, let's say 10 years, and you see no progress from 10 years ago, you better start worrying or come and talk to me because that's what sanctification is. I told you last week. It's a process, and it's continuously you working together in partnership with the Holy Spirit. So in this chapter, Paul comes in, and he talks, he's talking to believers who are seeking to live a godly, holy, unrighteous life. And so in this chapter, he points out that true freedom is not in our performance. That was the old time. But in our total trust and surrender to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ given to us by His Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Are you with me? Say amen. amen. 
in the next chapter, chapter 10, which I'm breaking into two because it's, so, it's, it's a fantastic chapter, but he will show us how that power, how we appropriate that power of God in our lives. But here in chapter 7, he gives us basically four pillars or foundational stones of our freedom from performance. Four pillars. First pillar. We're bound to Christ, not in bondage, verses 1 to 6. Second pillar, maturity, I'm talking about spiritual maturity, builds up. Spiritual immaturity tears down, verses 7 to 13. The third pillar. Third pillar is basically saying, do-it-yourself religion. You know what I'm talking about? Do-it-yourself religion will always fail, <laughs> and you'll be frustrated. Verses 14 to 23, and then the fourth filler, uh, pillar, the fourth pillar, surrender, will always, always keep you afloat. Verses 24 and 25. Let's look at the first one. The first foundational stone of freedom from performance is that love which binds us The Word of God is saying to every one of us that the law, He's specifically here talking about the Ten Commandments. Sometimes we refer to the law as referring to all the rituals in the Old Testament, which was all fulfilled in Christ. But here's talking about the Ten Commandments, wonderful as they are. How can you not say the Ten Commandments are not wonderful? They are written by God Himself. They're reflecting of God's character. But this ten, the Ten Commandments, wonderful as they are, keep us in bondage. They will keep us on trying to perform, and then we blow it every time. Every time. You know what it's like, right? Maybe you're not. I do. <laughs> I mean, it's like swimming upstream. You're swimming against the current. You are making great efforts, but you're going nowhere. Or you're doing what I do four or five times a, day, a week, uh, running on a treadmill. <laughs> Man, I run hard, but I'm not even heading at one foot in front of me. If the law is the only thing we go by, we're bound to it. And we're bound to be frustrated. We're bound to stay in bondage, in the bondage of performance. We try and we fail. We try and we fail. We try and we fail. Ah, but because of Christ's redemption, we are set free from that bondage. Amen? Hear me right. The illustration that the Apostle Paul gives us here is that about the marriage vow. Now, you've got to understand. He says this, for example. When he says, for example, it's an illustration. Sometimes I work hard to find an illustration to make a point. Paul doesn't. He found this illustration of the marriage vow. It's just an example, illustration, that the husband and wife are bound to each other, and the vows are bounding, they're bound by the vows as long as both are living. But when one dies, the other spouse, the living spouse, is totally released from that bond or that vow. You know, I, th I really thought long and hard. I'm going to let you know a family secret, okay? Please don't tell anybody else. It's going to be a secret between you and me. 
I tell my wife this all the time. I said, if God forbid that you go first, I'm praying and I'm working on going first. <laughs> it's my prayer. It's my, my hope. I know it's selfish, but that's okay. I think God forgives me for that selfishness. But I said, if God forbid he'll take you first, I will never marry. Very simply, no woman would ever put up with me like she did. <laughs> but I'm saying to the widows and the widows in this church, and maybe some of you are watching, I'm telling you, you are free to remarry once your spouse has gone to glory. You are absolutely free. In fact, as your pastor, I encourage you to marry if that's what you want. Which reminds me actually of a story. A friend of mine told me about a, a, a cruise that was organized by a Christian group, but it was for widows and widowers. And uh, this particular widow kept looking at this man. Every time he walks by, she looks at him at the meal table. She's looking at him. Day after day, she's looking at him. And finally, he got, you know, freaked out. He walked up to her and he said, uh, do we know each other? She said, no, not really, not that I know of. Well, he just keep looking at me. She said, yeah, you remind me of my third husband. <laughs> he said, well, just how many husbands did you have? She said, two. <laughs> that sets you of the spouse sets you free from the marriage vow. And here's Paul is saying, just as death of one of the spouses brings release from the covenant of agreement of marriage, in Christ we too are released from the bondage of performance of the law. Are you with me? The result of that release, we found joy instead of despair, freedom instead of bondage, life instead of death, love instead of duty, willing service instead of begrudging effort. Second pillar is that maturity builds up. Immaturity tears down. Paul moves now from giving an illustration. This is an objective illustration using everyday common experience about marriage and marriage vows to really giving us an autobiographical illustration. See, when Paul was a boy, like all Jewish boys, he went through his bar mitzvah. Bar means son. Mitzvah means law. is the son of the law. And he wanted to live by the law. And he found himself that he could do okay. Not very good, but he can do okay with the first nine commandments. But oh, when he came to the tenth one about coveting, oh, he began to stumble. <laughs> he really did. <laughs> he would experience coveting, and he breaks the tenth commandments, and he falls into despair. In fact, the tenth commandment and the breaking of it and the coveting was tripping him into breaking all the other nine as well. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, Paul becomes conscious of sin. Looks like they paid the electric bill. <laughs> all of a sudden. <laughs> all of a sudden, Paul becomes conscious of sin. 
coveting. And he becomes aware of sin. Poor old Saul of Tarsus. I mean, he knew what covetousness was. And once he did, he, all he can think of is coveting. <laughs> all he can think of is coveting. Once he discovered what that was. Beloved, this is the kind of immaturity, the kind of childishness that some Christians live in day in and day out. Sometimes you see churches, I'm aware of some, that the believers are never matured in Christ. They're very immature in Christ, and that's why they're at each other's throat all the time. They're fighting all the time. They are, I mean, it just, it never ends. Thank God that in this place, and I say this not to brag about you, but I'm telling you, I thank God. I heard a few years, a couple of years ago, two pastors apparently were talking to each other, and I heard the second hand. They said, you know, we need to get some people from apostles. They have mature Christians. We need to bring them in our church. I said, you keep your mouth, to, keep your hands to yourself. <laughs> Beloved, the law reveals sin. The law activates sin. And that is why he kept on falling in sin. Now, I know that when we were children, I'm talking about my generation, okay, the uh, people in their 50s and 60s, when we were young, when we were adolescent, we were perfect. We were angels. We always did what our parents told, told us to do, right? That's what you tell our children, right? Well, some people do anyway. I don't. <laughs> but some of you have experienced adolescent rebellion. Now, I think some more degree than others. It works the same way with immature Christians. They try to live their Christian life depending on themselves. They try to live their Christian life their way. They try to live their Christian life depending on their own effort. But sooner or later, they get clobbered. Why? Because the law is a mirror. It reveals sin. It condemns sin. You know, when I look in the mirror first thing in the morning, my hair disheveled and there's no shaving, and I look in the who the heck is that? <laughs> Imagine if I'd say, you know what? I'm going to keep looking at this mirror until I look better. Just think about this. Think about the logic of this. That's, what the, that's really the argument he's making here. What's the chance of me looking better? None. Until I clean up and shave and comb my hair, nothing's changed. And that's what God's power does. It cleans you up. Maturity tells you your performance is not working. What you need to do is grow up. How many times we say that to grow up? And I'm saying this to all of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's grow up. The problem is not the mirror. It's your face. <laughs> it's my face. Your problem is not the law. Beloved, listen to me. The problem is not the law. It is sin. And this is, hear me right on this one. 
This is the mark of Christian maturity. Not to blame the Ten Commandments, but to come to grips of the sinfulness of sin. That's really the word. I remember as a boy hearing somebody preaching about the sinfulness of sin, and I have never forgotten it. The pastor of the largest church in America was asked, why don't you preach on, against sin? He said, sin is such a negative concept. I said, dummy, yes, of course it is negative. But how do you know you need the positive until you know what the negative is? Beloved, in the last 45 years, and I just reminded of this uh, literally a couple of days, three days ago, it was March 4th. This day, 1964, that I gave my life to Christ. So I have been studying the Word of God ever since. And the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I become aware of the sinfulness of sin. The more I walk with the Lord, I'm aware of the deception of sin. First pillar. Freedom is love, not bondage. Second, maturity, not immaturity. And thirdly, the third pillar, that do-it-yourself religion always going to frustrate you, always going to disappoint you. Look at verses 14 all the way to 24. Because here we come to Paul's personal testimony. That's his personal testimony. I am so thankful to the Lord. You have no idea. I do this gratitude to the Lord on a regular basis. That through the years, I had the privilege and the honor of sitting at the feet of some great and godly men. I really have. I'm so thankful to the Lord that they were not one of those people who only tell you about their victories. I remember when I was a new Christian, and I would hear these big preachers talking about victory all the time, victory, 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 never talk about their failures. And I used to think there's something wrong with me. But I sat at the feet of some great men. Who have shared their hearts and opened their hearts and taught me how to have victory. And I know from my own life. And I know that every serious-minded believer who's listening to me whether around the world or here in this beautiful audit sanctuary, we know experientially the enticement of sin is forever plaguing us. The allure of sin is forever beckoning us. The glamour of sin is forever enticing us. The glare of sin is forever calling us. As long as we live in this flesh, this body, blood and flesh, everywhere we turn, we see sin surrounding us. If you are an alert Christian, to fight sin with our own efforts, oh my goodness, if you do it on your own strength, it's only going to bring failure, frustrations, exasperation, and discouragement. And that is why the legalists, are you listening to me say amen? amen. 
the legalists give God a bad name. Did you know that? They give God a bad name because they try to live up to their standards, their own strength, and fail. And people are seeing it. They're watching it. They call themselves Christians. And that is why it is only when you and I allow the Holy Spirit of God to be the wind, because that's one of the names of the Holy Spirit, Ruach. He's the wind of the Holy Spirit to blow on our sail that will pull us forward from victory to victory. At the risk of some of you might misunderstand me. I'm really giving away secrets today. (laughs) That many times I speak with the Holy Spirit. And I pray to the Holy Spirit. Don't, 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 look, don't, don't send me emails and letters. I have my theology correct. I pray to the Father through the Son. That, that, that's, that's my regular prayer. But there are times when I, I feel compelled to say to the Holy Spirit, thank you for being my best friend. Thank you for being my paraclete, my comforter. Thank you for being my counselor. Thank you for being my guide. Thank you for being my convictor. Thank you for being my strength. And in the times when I grieve the Holy Spirit, I weep tears when I say to the Holy Spirit, please forgive me. I never want to grieve you how I would grieve my best friend. Some time ago, I read about shepherding of sheep in the highlands of Scotland. This is not something that you would know from the Scripture or even um, in my own experience in the Middle East because shepherding in the highlands of Scotland is very different. And when I read this story many, many years ago, sort of resonated with me. In the highlands of Scotland, the biggest concern that a shepherd has over their sheep is they wander off, and they get stranded into these very steep and rocky crags. The sheep normally would jump a few feet at a time to go down. They see the sweet vegetation, and they follow it, and they, they will jump down a few feet at a time, a few feet at a time, and they follow the grass, and finally they run out. And when they run out, and they see they can't get back up, they bleat so loud. But the shepherd does not immediately respond. Now, this is something, again, I would not have known unless I read about it. He waits until the sheep finishes eating all the vegetation. And sometimes not only waits a day or two, even longer, until the the sheep cannot stand up. They're so weak. At that point, the herdsman lower himself to the dangerous, lay on the dangerous ledge below and brings him back. You say, why? Oh, Because, they tell me, I've never been a shepherd, (laughs) that sheep are very frisky. 
And if the shepherd tried to rescue them early, they would jump out of the ledge and, and, and over the cliff and, and they would die. Beloved, do-it-yourself religion is not only frustrating, it is dangerous. Ah, but if you allow the Holy Spirit to work freely in you, He's going to lift you up to freedom's highway every time. Love, not bondage. Maturity, not immaturity. Do-it-yourself religion is frustrating and dangerous. Finally, fourthly, surrender keeps you afloat. Keeps you afloat. Every genuine, maturing believer understands and feels what the Apostle Paul is feeling as he's writing those words. What a wretched man that I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? I'm surrounded by sin. He's not saying that always falling in sin. He said, I'm just surrounded by I find it available all the time. Don't miss what I'm going to tell you. This cry of Paul takes us where the Lord Jesus Christ begins his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed the spiritual bankrupts, and know it, and confess it, because they will be blessed. Blessed are those who hate sin in their life, and they abhor it. I cannot count the times when I say to myself, when will I ever learn that it is surrender? that will give me true freedom. Beloved, listen to me. I can testify to the fact that if you seek God with all of your heart, you will find yourself in a perfect freedom. Hear me right. Because genuine believers are sensitive to sin. There's people who say, oh, no, no, you get to the point where you lick that. (laughs) Don't fall for that. You see, growing closer to Jesus, growing closer to Jesus. That's what we talk about sanctification. You're growing closer to Jesus. Become more like Christ. You're growing closer to Jesus. It's like getting closer to a bright light. All of a sudden you say, oh, there's some stain here. I didn't see that when I was away. Now I'm closer to the light. Or I'm closer to a magnifying mirror. And you get closer and closer. Oh, where all these little wrinkles come from? <laughs> see, you're conscious. Of sin. You couldn't see them when you're too far away, but as you come closer, you say, Why? Because Ephesians 4:30 tells us that sin grieves the Holy Spirit, and in 1 Corinthians 6:19 tells us that sin is dishonoring to the Lord. And in 1 Peter 3:12, is that sin will keep answers from prayer, to prayers from coming back. And in 1 Corinthians 9:27, it makes you spiritually powerless. And in Jeremiah 5:25, it withhold good things from God. And in Hebrews 12:57, it brings the Lord's 
chastisement. And in Psalm 51.12, it robs us from the joy of our salvation. And in 1 Corinthians 3.1, it inhibits our spiritual growth. And in 2 Timothy 2.21, it prevents us from being useful for the kingdom of God. And in 1 Corinthians 10.21, it pollutes Christian atmosphere. And in 1 Corinthians 11.30, it can endanger us even physically. Every godly person, whether they lived in the Old Testament or the New Testament, they knew they were saved by grace. When Abraham was saved, he was saved by faith, by grace, through faith. 400 years before the law was given. Nobody would ever be saved by the law. Even in the, after the law, they never knew they were going to be saved by the law. Those same saints also knew that as they grow closer to the Lord, they begin to feel wretched in comparison to the holiness of God. You know what our problem is in these days? Is that many Christians compare each other, themselves with each other. And then they pat themselves in the back and say, well, I'm not as bad as he is, and I'm not as bad as she is. That's, that's dangerous. Compare yourself with Jesus. That's who you want to compare yourself with. In fact, Isaiah, the Old Testament, the Old Testament, when Isaiah came into the throne room of God, he said, oh, I'm a man of unclean lips. The closer you get to God's holiness, the clearer you see your sinfulness. But thanks be to God that the Apostle Paul does not leave us hanging here with verse 24, where he exclaimed, who can rescue me from this body of death? Don't miss this. Don't miss this. He did not say, what must I do to get delivered from this body of death? That's what a lot of Christians do. Uh, how can I respond? Or what program should I implement to get me out of this? Or what white paper I could write on the subject? Or what marketing program I could um, bring along? What 27-step step program should I implement in my life? No, 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 no. No, in a million, no. The answer is, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Say it with me. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Only surrender to God will give you deliverance. Only surrender to God will make us float to victory's shore. You get to the point where said, now that I've come to the end of my rope, now that I've come to the end of myself, now that I have come to the end of my efforts, I know where to go for victory. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Say it again. Thanks be to God through our Lord. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, often we don't know where to begin in thanking you for your grace, for your mercy. We don't know where to begin 
in bowing our heads and bending our knees in gratitude to you. Thanks be to God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, you have the victory, you gained the victory when you defeated death and the grave, and you make your victory available to us. It's like the song said, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Oh, bless the name of Jesus. Thanks be to God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In a moment, we're going to sing and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. And then I'm going to do something different. After we sing the song, I'm going to ask you to kneel with me. You know, the Scripture says, and you hear it every communion service, do not come in an unworthy manner. That means don't have an unconfessed sin. And so we're going to have an opportunity after we sing the song, preparing our hearts for the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Robin.
Physically able, you can kneel, and if you can't, you can sit down. Is a prayer that was written in the 1500s and then was edited 1662. It's the best prayer I know that we can corporately join together to prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. I know that our ministers of communion are going to have to turn to the screen. Let's say together to the Lord, Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and we bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against Thy divine majesty, provoking most justly Thy wrath and indignation against us, we are earnestly repent, and we're heartily sorry for them that grieves. So them are grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. Have mercy on us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, for Thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Forgive us and grant us that we may ever hereafter serve and please You in the newness of life to the honor and the glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Scripture makes it clear that if we confess with our hearts and repent, God's Word tells us that we are pardoned and forgiven. For that, we give God all the praise and the thanksgiving. Amen. The Lord on the night, you can stand now, the, the Lord on the night He was betrayed took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you'll proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. And that is why anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Sorry for seating and standing, but it's a good exercise for you. Oh, Lord Jesus.